Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Bavakama, daf pay bet, page 82. So as we began yesterday, already we had, you know, a statement or or 10 statements in the name of one, right? And here we have, on this daf, we have several 10 statements in the name of one. So the first is, Ezra HaSofer, Asara Takanot, Tikein Ezra. Ezra decreed 10 I got no, 10 degrees. Um, uh, some of these will be familiar to you because we learned them back in Masach Megillah. This is our Torah readings that we read uh, from the Torah at Mincha time on Shabbat, which we do to this day, and that we read on the in the Torah on Sunday morning and Sunday morning, Monday morning and Thursday morning, the second day and the fifth day. Um, and we do that to this day too. And the courts would convene on Mondays and Thursdays. And they would people would do laundry on Thursday. Um, you may or may not do that, right? But the decree was held back in the back in the day. And people would eat garlic on Shabbat. Uh, on Arab Shabbat on Friday. Oh, I say people will eat. I mean, this was a decree that he made. Presumably, people took it as seriously as we take the Torah reading, um, except for that the institution of these latter decrees is not as in effect in the same way. Uh, and a woman should wake up early, get up early and bake on those days, specifically. Whatever it is that she's going to bake, she should bake early in the morning. And a woman should build herself with an apron or... It seems to be uh, a breech cloth. It's some kind of, I don't know, undergarment that was, we'll see that the Gemara says it's a, a modesty issue. And a woman should, um, she should comb out her hair and only then go to the mikvah, to velet in the mikvah, to dunk. And then when the peddlers would come, this is a whole, now we've moved on from the woman. When the peddlers would come, um, when they would bring perfumes and so on, I guess that still is the women, right? But they would travel to the different towns. And he, Ezra, uh, decreed that a Balkaria, somebody who had a seminal omission, would require dunking in a mikveh as well. Uh, a purity level that was not required at, or not to that degree until um, Ezra made this decree. Then, of course, the Gemara is going to parse these for us. The, the idea that the Torah needed to be read on Shabbat afternoon was um, to accommodate or rather to kind of provide an answer for those who would just kind of bum around, that they would sit on the street corners, and meaning they didn't go to the to the synagogue during the week, so they didn't have enough of a sense of what the Parsha was going to be, what the Torah reading was. So this would give them more of it because they're going to go to shul, I guess, on Shabbat afternoon, um, and therefore they would get this this extra reading. What about the reading on the to- of the Torah on the Thursday mornings? Ezra Tikein, really? Did Ezra really decree that? Didn't we already have this instituted from the very beginning, meaning long before Ezra, because we have this inferred or implied, and we learned this also back in Masachat Megillah, that Moshe, that Moses, uh, instituted this reading. 
the verse in Shemot in Exodus 15, where it says that they traveled for three days in the wilderness and they didn't have any water. Um, so they interpret it to, as a figure of speech or or not literally, right? To say, anytime you're talking about Mayim, water, you're going to have really, they're really talking about Torah. So they didn't have Torah for three days in the same way that the text says that they didn't have water for three days. And so anybody who thirsts, this is now a verse from Yeshayahu from Isaiah chapter 55, anybody who thirsts, go for the water, come for the water. The idea being that you have to have Torah reading every three days or you're going to be parched, right, from your from the need for the Torah. So that what that means is because the Jews had traveled, the Israelites had traveled for three days without any Torah, they became weary. They kind of faded, right? Right? So because the people kind of faded for th after going, when they went three days without hearing any Torah, so the prophets among them got up and instituted, namely, they would read on Shabbat, the full said, rather read the whole Torah portion on Saturday, and then they would skip Sunday, and then they would read again on Monday, and they would skip Tuesday and Wednesday, and read again on Thursday, and then not to read on Arab Shabbat. And so that means, like, by definition, if you look at the week, you don't go three days without hearing the Torah. So that seems to go back a long, long way before Ezra. So why is it instituted? Why is it attributed to him here? So the Gemara explains that really initially they would they established it that one person would read three verses, or three people would read three verses, but meaning either way, you end up with a, a much lesser amount of Torah being read. Uh, still, we have here, these three would be corresponding to the to the demarcations amongst the Jewish people, namely Kohanim and Levites, Levim and Yisraelim. Um, so Ezra's decree was that there were three people who would read, three men who would read, and that they would always read ten verses that would a minimum of ten verses that would be divided among them. And clearly, you know, in Masachimikila, they get very involved in figuring out how you can break up those ten verses when each aliyah has to have three verses, and it gets complicated, as you may recall. Um, but the why 10 verses to correspond to the 10 batlanin, the literally it means people who kind of like idled away their time. But the idea is that these are the people who were able to devote themselves to the synagogue, to the community, to learning, whatever, that they didn't have to go out to work for whatever different reason. Sometimes maybe they were supported by the community. Maybe they were independently wealthy. Fine. But the Nin Vashaniva Khamishi, what about the judgments that were the court that was convened on Monday and Thursday? So the Gemara explains that people would be in the city on those days because those were the market days. And they come also, or it doesn't actually say here the market days. We know they were the market days. But the people would come together on these days for hearing the Torah, as we've just established, right? That they would uh, not go three days without hearing the Torah. So here, too, since the people would come together, that's when the judges would also sit. 
מחפשים בחמישי בשבת, why the laundry, on Thursdays, משום כבוד שבת. The idea being that you want to make sure that your clothes are clean in time for Shabbat. We learned also in Masachet Shabbat, right? You don't want to do the laundry on Friday, lest you end up not finishing in time, right? And that could be a problem, whether you come to do malachi, you come to keep doing the laundry into Shabbat, or you're just not ready, and then you don't have your clean stuff for Shabbat. What about eating garlic on Friday? So this is uh, the claim that there is, that it's either some kind of aphrodisiac or some kind of sexual potency kind of properties to the garlic. Because we have a verse here from, it's from Tehillim, meaning this is not science, um, but it says that like the, It's a verse of the tree planted by the streams of the water who brings forth the fruit in his season. It's not clear who made this particular statement. Any one of these four, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nachman, Rav Kahana, or maybe Rabbi Yochanan, what did they say? We're talking about somebody who has, um, who, Uh, a man who has sexual intercourse with his wife every Friday, every Arab Shabbat. So the idea being that the fulfillment of that verse, namely that he's bringing forth his fruit, and presumably then the garlic is to help with that. We have more on the garlic. Five different things were said about garlic, namely, It satisfies, it warms the body. I think that 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 one, you know, the fact that there's heat in garlic, I think is well, it, um, it causes one's face to shine. Uh, I don't know how much garlic you need for that to happen. It increases the zera, the sperm, and it kills the lice that are in the, in, in the innards, in the intestines. So I don't know if that means a parasite. I don't know. Yardina, do you know if there's any science to this? I I literally have no idea. I mean, people say garlic helps with a lot of things. So, you know. Right. It's true. It's like almost like coconut oil. No, I'm kidding. Nothing is like coconut oil. And lastly, the there are those who say that the garlic will instill love in those who eat it. And it will also remove jealousy from them. So garlic here, garlic being a wondrous, uh, having wondrous properties was This has been going on for centuries, really. Um, okay, we're getting to the end here. The woman should get up early and bake bread when she does so, when she bakes bread. Why? So that she should be able to give the bread to poor people who go begging for bread in the morning that she'll already be ready with bread to give out. This, I think, is the nicest um, of all of these decrees, right? Like the thoughtfulness with regard to the poor people who might come begging, I think is very, very generous and very nice here. That a woman should wear this kind of apron or or whatever the garment was. The idea is it says specifically here now in the Gemara Mishum because of modesty. So that's why I say it's some kind of underwear or or undergarment um, to protect her 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 modesty. And the woman should first comb out her hair, only then go to dunk. Why the idea being that there's no dirt or schmutz or whatever in her hair that would then you know contradicts the, the dunking itself, you know, and then the Gemara says, do right to he. I mean, that's not something from Ezra. That's something that the Torah already commands at a, at a Torah level of commandment because otherwise the dunking doesn't count. So why are we attributing this to Ezra? 
בתניא ורחץ את בשרו במים, שלא יהיה דבר חוצץ בין בשרו למים. The Breta here presents um, the verse from Vayikra, from Leviticus chapter 14, that he, he in this case, is about purification for the man, that he bathes, he dunks in the water, uh, meaning specifically his flesh in the water, that there should be nothing between the person's flesh and the water. Nowadays, we can even talk about, you know, the fact that water will go through a garment, like a bathing suit or something like that. But in terms of the water touching all the points of a person's hair, you can't have any schmutz there. It'll, it'll get in the way. So the Gemara comes to explain why hair is included here, meaning anything that is kind of dependent or, or connected depending on the, on the body itself, namely one's hair, meaning the hair is not actually flesh, right? But nonetheless, it's still going to be something that can't be separated from, the, like the person plus the water shouldn't be separated from the water to the hair. So so we know that a person's hair has to be clean before the dunking is going to work. What is Ezra adding here? Amri da'oraita liyuna dilma miktar inami ma'us midai mishum chatzitsa so the, they explain that the, by the Torah law, you have to inspect your hair before you dunk. You have to make sure there's not knots or too many knots, right? You want to make sure that the water can go everywhere. You want to make sure there's nothing really icky in one's hair. And you do that whole inspection thing because you want to make sure that there's no barrier to the water. So what did Ezra do? Ezra came and said, you have to brush out your hair, meaning not, not, checking to make sure that there's no barrier, but physically doing the act that will then remove a barrier, even if you think or you know that your hair is not knotted or doesn't have any schmutz or whatever. What about the peddlers that would go through the cities, or the towns rather? They would bring through, they would bring um, adornments for the woman, whether this is jewelry or maybe it means cosmetics, right? The idea being, and Ezra's point here being that the women should not become unattractive to their husbands because they're going to continue to, I guess, purchase and, you know, refresh it, fresh, freshen up whatever they might have already. And then lastly here, um, this is the requirement of immersion for somebody who has a, a man who's experienced a seminal mission. Again, the verse says, one second, we know that already. That's from the Torah. We know that a man who has a seminal mission has to dunk in, in the mikvah in order to become pure. So what does he do? The Torah law is really about sanctity, the laws of purity. But by the time Ezra is making these decrees, it's a different level of, of concern. He says, we're going to decree that kind of immersion even for studying uh, Torah for reciting words of Torah, which is a much more stringent kind of requirement than if you're talking about actually handling kudshim, that which has been consecrated. Nardana, over to you. All right. Well, we got two other tidbits here that I think are great. Um, the first is after that, we go to a list of 10 things that were said about Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. A house in Yerushalayim is never permanently sold. The idea being because it belongs to all of the tribes. So it, you know, so it doesn't actually have like a permanent um, owner. And what this means is, is somebody sells a house and it, it's talking about in any walled city, uh, there's a special halakha in Eretz Yisrael that you have a year to redeem it. You can buy it back 
even if the purchaser doesn't want you to buy it back. Um, and then if you don't buy it back, then it belongs to the purchaser for forever, um, uh, even in Yovel. So that's an interesting uh, particular thing. But in Yerushalayim, it, it has the law of an open city. Um, so any salt house could be redeemed at any time. Um, and it goes back to the original o owner during Yovel. So it's different than other walled cities. Uh, then it goes on to say, right? The law of if you find a dead body sort of in the fields and then you would trace what city it was closest to and you would decapitate a calf. We don't do Egla Rufa uh, for uh, Yerushalayim. Um, and uh, the reason for that also is, is that, uh, you know, the Gemara basically explains why is, you know, Yerushalayim exempt from that particular mitzvah uh, because uh, the way the Pasuk says that it has to be in the land that you uh, inherited, and Yerushalayim is not inherited land because it's not owned by any of the Shvatim. It also cannot become a city where, you know, people who did uh, negligent murder could go to, uh, where they would have to live. Uh, and also one of the reasons why it, it was that is because it, it has to be in your cities. The book says Arecha, that's how the Pasuk, and that's not a city that's owned by anybody. Uh, we don't extend beams or balconies in Yerushalayim. And the reason for this, the Gemara explains, is because when you have an extension, it makes a tent, and this can affect the laws of purity and impurity, and we don't want to create more space where people can become impure when they're in Yerushalayim, right? Generally, people who were in Yerushalayim were visiting were there to do things in the temple. We don't want to give more opportunities for people to become impure. We don't make garbage dumps in the city, right? So it doesn't smell bad because it's supposed to be a beautiful city. We don't make kilns in the city also so it doesn't be smoky and smell bad. We don't have gardens or orchards in the city. Except for the exception of the garden of uh, the garden of roses so there was one particular um garden that was there and uh the reason for that is uh you know also that we uh uh is we don't want to the, the gemara explains it's because we don't want to create sircha that's the term that it used and it's some type of like smell that could come from a garden i think people have walked by a garden where you sort of have that decaying botanical smell there. So again, it's a smell issue, even though they're beautiful to look at. Um, sorry, that garden was there from the time of the Nevi'im Roshonim. Uh, so that's why that one was allowed to stay. We don't raise chickens in Yerushalayim. Um, again, for the reason that, uh, you know, it's there's all those two Mantara issues that we spoke about before, in general, about why we don't raise uh, the issue about raising chickens altogether. And also they're particularly smelly and dirty. And we also don't keep a corpse in Yerushalayim uh, overnight. We bury them uh, right away or we take them out of Yerushalayim uh, right away. And if anyone actually, if you've been in Yerushalayim, so first of all, in Israel in general, we tend to bury very, very quickly. But in Yerushalayim, you will have funerals at two o'clock in the morning even. Like they bury very, very quickly. Uh, I've seen two o'clock in the morning. I've seen an hour before Shabbat. Uh, they, the dead are buried very, very quickly. So the Gemara is going to... And then just a, just a, just a yeah. side point. 
when they want to, you know, sometimes they wait for family to arrive from outside of the country, right? So then they remove the body from Jerusalem for the time for that time. The the rule of not having a dead body overnight in Jerusalem is taken very seriously, even under the circumstances when the burial cannot be immediate. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. I meant to say that, and that was a good point. Right, so they won't even leave the body. Let's say they do make the decision to delay it, they won't leave the body there. So that, that is a good point. So I think what's interesting about this is to see that we actually do do some of these things today when it comes to Yerushalayim. Um, and then I couldn't, you know, uh, give up. There's one great little history piece here at the end, which is the Gemara then goes back to why we don't raise uh, pigs uh, in all of Eretz Yisrael. And it gives the reason for it. And it teaches the following, right? So which again, is just one of those like great nuggets of history that we see in the Gemara. Tanu Rabbanan, right? So when the Hashmonai royal house was fighting with one another. So what is it that they're talking about? This is, uh, so remember that we had King Yanai, right, who was married to Shlomsian Hamalka, King's, Queen Salome. This is during the time of Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach was King Salome's brother. And Yanai, if you remember, tried to kill all the Talmud Chachamim, except for Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach is the third pair of the Zugot, okay, of the, those, those five pairs that we have. Uh, so he's part of the middle one. And... Um, after King Yanai dies, okay, so first of all, just know that King Yanai is the great-grandson of Matasyahu HaKohen. So Matasyahu has a son named Shimon, right? That's uh, Yehuda Maccabee's brother. And then he has a son, Yohanan Hyrcanus. And then that son is Yanai, okay? So Yanai is basically a great-grandson of Matasyahu HaKohen. Uh, he dies. Shlomsian Hamalka, she becomes the ruler afterwards. And then after she dies, she has two sons, her firstborn, who is Hyrcanus, and then her second son, who is Aristobulus. Um, and they basically start a civil war uh, because Aristobulus would like to be the ruler instead of the firstborn of Hyrcanus. And again, this is also an important price because as we know, the Chachamim rabbinic, the, the rabbinic class had sort of mixed feelings towards the Hashmonaim. Yes, they fought off the Greeks, but they weren't necessarily uh, 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 some of the way that they conducted themselves was not a way that they always uh, loved or necessarily respected. So what happens to their fighting? So Hyrcanus is inside Yerushalayim. Aristobulus is on the outside. And every day those in Yerushalayim would lower dinar coins in a basket outside of the wall. And those outside would send up lambs, right? The Korban Tamid was a lamb for the daily daily sacrifices. Um, So the idea was that the coins were taken basically from the the temple treasury. um, And uh, the the Jews who supported Aristobulus, they could sort of purchase the animals uh, for for the sacrifices. Um, Inside of Yerushalayim, there was an old man who knew Greek wisdom. Now, it's not clear what exactly this means, but what it does tell us is, is that even though the, you know, the Jews, remember, because the whole thing with the Hashmanim was sort of to fight off Greek culture, but the idea is, is that there was some wise man or someone who was part of the ruling class 
who actually did know some gr- Greek wisdom, Amar Lahem, and he says, um, so as long as the Jews inside Yerushalayim are able to do the sacrificial service, so he's talking to the supporters of Aristobulus who are outside, they will not be delivered into your hands. Right on the the on the on the morrow, right the next day, the Jews inside lowered the dinar coins in a basket. And what did the supporters of Aristobulus put inside? They put in a pig. Once the pig reached the midpoint of the wall, it dug its hooves into the wall. And the land of Israel trembled. Right, an area of 400 parsa by 400 parsa. And at that time, the rabbi said, Right, cursed be the man who raises swine. And cursed be the man who teaches uh, his um, his son uh, Greek wisdom. Um, and so the idea here is, is that essentially something shifts, right? There becomes something that is, uh, because the people are acting broken with each other, Yerushalayim physically becomes broken. And what does it become broken with? It becomes broken by this actual pig, because the pig was used as a way to derail the avoda, right? That the hatred was so great between these two groups the supporters of Hyrcanus and the supporters of Aristobulus, that those who wanted to get in, like literally wanted to get into Yerushalayim, uh, were willing to even send a pig and disrupt the Avoda just to see those goals happen. So it's a very, very interesting, uh, uh, you know, Brisa that's here. I think it explains why the rabbis felt very, very mixed towards the Hashmonaim in general. Um, And, uh, you know, what the correct relationship is why does it say that sort of he uh you know had this type of greek wisdom that's not very clear and the mafarshim spent some time uh trying to explain uh exactly what that is that there was some type of influence by outside knowledge uh that was not jewish knowledge that could lead somebody down towards this path of sin i think it's really interesting the i I always have this question about the pigs like how is it that pork became the quintessential trace, right? Why is it more trace than all the other things that are trace? And I think that some of this is why, right? Like there's yes. so much more going on than just a matter of a prohibition against a certain ingestible. Right. If there was like this apocryphal story that it was a pig that literally destroyed the homot of Yerushalayim, yes, then you can see why pig has its own standing. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the 100 website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 